A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Labour leadership race. You ask us, what's the future for the Liberal Democrats? And what does the unfreezing of benefits really mean? So it's been another week in which in many ways we've all kind of, well, I certainly feel when writing the politics column, I've looked to the horizon and gone, thank God for the Labour leadership election, because we'll talk a little bit later on about the reasons why the government is kind of doing this kind of, you know, the lights are on, but nothing is nothing is, is there, because I think it's interesting. But let's first start by doing a sort of update on the state of the Labour leadership race. Shall we talk about the National Union of Mine Workers? Because if I usually said that on this podcast, you know, we you would, yeah, you would yeah. get out your shepherd's crook and like, you know, yank me off stage. But this week, of all weeks, it's actually a really important it is, yeah, it is. Uh, moment in the week. Yeah, so why are the National Union of Mine Workers an important moment in the week? And really, they're an important moment in every week I have. But this week in particular, they have nominated Lisa Nandy for the Labour leadership. Cue an avalanche of tweets, as Lisa Nandy's campaign briefed this out, exclusive given to the Yorkshire Post, that, oh, it's a small but symbolic endorsement that says so much about how Lisa Nandy represents the industrialised community. Wrong. Um, <laughs> under the new rules... A union-affiliated Labour Party, of which there are 13, some of them small. The NUM, don't quote me on this, but I imagine must be probably the smallest with 730 active members. Oh yeah, there's there's no way then. I mean, one, I think we can safely say that, because although when you make claims about which one the biggest one is, Unite in Unison will send you these very long emails about why they have a claim to be the largest one. Nobody nobody is going to come and complain, maybe apart from the NUM if they're listening. But, yeah, no, yeah um, no one wants to be the smallest, <laughs> right? But you know, it's not a small and symbolic endorsement. One, because... They have, you know, as much nominating heft as any union, apart from the ones that clear the 5% threshold by themselves. So the GMB is so big that Lisa Nandy, if she gets the GMB, she'll have cleared the bit of the union affiliate nomination rules where she has the 5% of affiliated members and then just needs another union, got the NUM, 
and another affiliate of any size. So one, it's not a small but symbolic endorsement and everybody was telling on themselves that they don't understand the new rules. Mm. Two, lots of people were saying, what a massive snub for Rebecca Long-Bailey, which is a complete misreading of, well, I was going to say the National Union of Mine Workers, but also like Google, Wikipedia. They didn't nominate in 2016. <laughs> and they also, as you were the first to point out, Stephen, nominated Yvette Cooper in 2015. So it's not surprising that they haven't gone for the Corbynite continuity candidate. But also, how do you square a union going with the Corbyn continuity candidate if they couldn't even nominate Corbyn against Owen Smith? It, it was mm. just really dispiriting. So yeah, that was the most. That was the most significant moment in. Well, one of the most significant moments in the week, and certainly the most significant moment in terms of how close people are to the ballot. It's second endorsement of the race mm. and I think actually as much as I've just said it isn't surprising we might see some of the smaller unions the Corbynite in inverted commas unions go in quite surprising directions I won't reveal my small union sources but I had a conversation with the general secretary early this week whose preference is very much not what you'd expect it to be given the record of his union but as ever yeah. can can these people carry their executives if Lem McCluskey has one preference and his executive have another well no matter what you read about the magnetic power of Len McCluskey, then ultimately he's going to have to square his own personal preferences with what his executive think and ditto this unnamed and conveniently heterodox small union leader I spoke to the other day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the I keep thinking about this joke that a Liberal Democrat MP made to me in the run-up to the 2015 election, where they said, yeah, said they said the press has covered uh, the progressive parties pretty badly, but don't worry, their coverage of our two leadership elections will be worse. And <laughs> I am continually startled the number of times that journalists will be spun by the rule book. Like I, I have, yeah, and it's completely within the right of any of the Labour leadership campaigns to do this. But it's just like it is a publicly available document. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm reminded of when a senior official at a at a broadcaster said to me when I mentioned something about something that was in the withdrawal agreement, and they said. Oh, yeah, you're a bit of a nerd, aren't you? It's like, no, 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 I'm a nerd because I went to see the rise of Skywalker at midnight. <laughs> I read the withdrawal agreement because I'm the political editor of a magazine and it's a hugely important document for our future as a country. I didn't enjoy reading it. Right? Also, also yeah. real talk, control F exists. You don't have to read these documents cover to cover. Like, yeah. You just need to know where the link is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously it adds to the fact that I think if, you know, if we were to start anointing a winner every week, which we're not going to do. But if we were, I think we would say Lisa Nandy had had far and away the best week in this leadership election. She symbolically cleared Becky Long-Bailey in the parliamentary nominations, which actually, no, I don't. I think is, is more important for more than a symbol as well, right? Because one of the many reasons why Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn's leadership did not go well is he could not form a viable front bench, right? Even after he became hegemonic within the party, he was still having to make a choice between ideological coherence and basic competence. Because let's say if we're being especially generous, then of every three MPs, one is not interested in being in the front bench, one is a good front bencher, and the other one should not be on the front bench. If you only have 13 genuine supporters... Even if, actually, even if they're slightly more talented than average, right? Let's say that the rate among the Labour left is more like one in two. That's still only seven decent front benches. And the implicit argument, actually, I say implicit. I, I know from having spoken to some people in CLPs that this is an argument that people are making for various candidates. Is you know, Keir Starmer can form a front bench. Becky Long Bailey can just about former front bench and in terms of the key jobs that matter in terms of coherence in opposition i think shadow treasury shadow home and shadow defense she she you know and shadow welfare 
I'm slightly ruining the point of my, my point here. <laughs> but actually, no, there are quite a lot of roles you need. Um, and Lisa Nandy, by getting 31 or 32 or whatever it is, has entered the zone where she too is someone who could form a coherent front bench. And she is, I think, successfully, they have either they have managed or the fact that, you know, we keep saying this, has sort of started to break through into the kind of mass circulation publications that, yeah. that she is actually obscure and therefore they they do need to introduce her to their viewers. Exactly. And the only way is upright for yeah. her. It's a, it's a little yeah. bit like Corbyn, isn't it? Where I think at the beginning when, when she was a prospect for the candidacy, but no one really knew, no one normal knew much about her, we kind of thought, well, you know, that would be nice to have her on the ballot, but it's probably not going to happen. And similarly with Jeremy Corbyn, all he had to do was run like a slightly more charismatic, better crafted campaign than the other candidates. And suddenly everyone was asking, who is Jeremy Corbyn? And yeah people like us had to start running more pieces about what he was and like you Stephen telling us exactly sort of what his strategy was with his campaign and how well he was doing and that's kind of what's happening with Lisa Nandy now of course the big difference is whether or not members you know will will bother to vote for her well this is the thing that I'm really aware of that the momentum is with Lisa Nandy but Keir Starmer is still the person who's out in front and who kind of just needs to maintain his mm-hmm. lead and not do much maybe because he's better known with members but yeah I've been surprised I mean I've had lots of conversations with Liberal Democrats this week for a piece so I have a very Lib Dem angle on it um, <laughs> I'm just surprised by how much Lisa Nandy is dominating the conversation like you, like if you're going to have an interesting conversation about the Labour leadership race you basically talk about Lisa Nandy and her policy proposals and her ideas and whether it would work what kind of a leader she would be and that's, you know, that's very much the case when you're speaking to people from other parties. The first thing I've really noticed is how well she's spoken of. Um, liberals like her because I think her dad was a liberal and she, she hails from a liberal tradition. And they and, re- and her granddad, Frank yeah. Byers, leader of Lib Dems in the Lords. Good knowledge. So they love that. Um, they, <laughs> they actually, so they've all sort of said, oh, we, we would never say, you know, publicly that we like Lisa <laughs> and we wouldn't, wouldn't want to damage that campaign. But they all really back her. That's um, so interesting. I think that they like that, you know, how dare we tell working class people what's good for them rhetoric and they think it comes from a really sort of sincere liberal sensibility and and also they do quite like that she is the person who's going let the cities take care of themselves yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly i mean because i think that liberal democrats from their perspective you know they think that jess phillips would be a bit hostile to them because she fought against a liberal democrat to win her seat Someone like Keir Starmer comes from a city where Liberal Democrats are a sort of active threat in his mind. And ditto Emily Thornbury. And then Rebecca Long-Bailey is so far away from them politically. Mm. But they quite like Lisa Nandy. And the second thing I'm really noticing, apart from like, is how well she's spoken of more generally by Liberal Democrats and other Labour MPs in terms of just, you know, older MPs have said, oh, you know, from the second she entered Parliament, I really thought that she was a rising star she's really really talented she has what people describe as living room appeal where they sort of say that she you know she might not be an amazing public speaker but that when she's on your tv screen she's very relatable and comes across really well i went to go and do a piece with her in wigan a long time ago in 2015 mm. um which was sort of a a nation sort of part of our crumbling britain series and she took me around and she got me wigan's best fish and chips and we went and had pints and stuff and i think a lot of lads. journalists yeah lads, lads. Look, well, she was pregnant at the time so she was not drinking <laughs> just in case anyone looks up the actual dates but um, <laughs> but um 
I think lots of journalists have stories like that, like, mm. like where she's sort of been very accommodating and also sort of impressive to interview. Yeah. Um, and so those kind of stories come up with a lot of people you speak to. And it's also important what the Lib Dems are saying about her, because a lot of Lib Dem MPs that you speak to, which I'm sure you found when you've been reporting mm. your piece, for them, a good Labour leader is good for the Lib Dems, yeah. because yeah. often people say that when you have a poor a Labour leader who's not popular, the Lib Dems suffer as well as Labour MPs. I, th- I think one of the really interesting things about, you know, I'm not doing a piece on the Liberal Democrats, but I was talking to one today, semi-coincidentally, because we bumped into each other in, in uh, Paul Cullis' house. And the fascinating thing is the 2019 election has, I think, settled, at least in the parliamentary party, mm-hmm. settled the argument about whether or not bad news for the Labour Party is, bad, is good news for the Liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. Some people, lots of them thought, Corbyn was an opportunity in 2015. Lots of them still thought that after 2017. And now the argument, which... Because bear in mind, all Lib Dem arguments within the Lib Dems aren't really ideological. They, they have ideological arguments and they have strategic arguments, but they do not map onto each other at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, the argument that the Labour Party needs to be strong is one that I've heard from David Laws, I've heard yeah. from Vince Cable, I've heard, yeah, from right across the, the party. But the Laws-Cable argument, I think, has been definitively settled because although very few of them will say Joe Swinson, no, none of them think Joe Swinson had a great campaign, yeah, they all go, well, I had many more conversations with voters, you know, about their real leader in the minds of voters. Mm. So they know they need, and in fact, I think they probably need a, the, the position Labour needs to be in to win an election and the position the Lib Dems need to be in, I think is actually probably slightly different in that the things the Labour Party needs to reassure Conservative voters that it can win on are slightly different from the ones that Conservative voters who might vote for the Lib Dems need to be reassured on. So their their interests aren't exactly overlapping, but I think they do now all believe them to. Mm. I am going to be the slight ghost in the feast about this, right? And it's brilliant that she's putting forward actual policies. And so I therefore am where I'm going to sound like the these meals are terrible, but such small portions. <laughs> but these were all things we said about Ed, right? Yeah. Ed was hugely personal and likable and warm and interesting and thoughtful. But the overall message didn't cohere and was nonsense. And the mm. overall message she's putting forward is nonsense. Like, Which it, is where her big intervention today <coughs> on freedom of movement yeah. comes in. Obviously, we were discussing this before we came on air, like mm. all the best discussions we have it's too hot for the podcast but we'll present a bolderized version now um, <laughs> you know there are two readings of this my reading of it was that Lisa Nani gave a speech at the RSA earlier in which she said I'm pro-free movement her team briefed it out as a defense a strong defense of free movement mm-hmm. and she said the regime as it currently exists is not without its faults but it's primarily a reflection on the crisis of skills in the communities that have had the biggest influx of net migration so you know we need to look into you know investing in skills training or whatever but that doesn't that doesn't mean being little englander or being against the principle of free movement and obviously as you wrote in morning call yesterday that is a point you know this whole how do you reconcile lisa nandy's candidate for towns and lisa nandy's candidate who can win among the labor selectorate is one of the unresolved tensions of her campaign and a smart Mm. candidate will say to her lisa you say you're pro pro free movement but you bang on about listening to towns and you said last year that accepting an end to freedom of movement was the price of respecting the result of the referendum which you also bang on about it a lot how do you reconcile those things so one reading of that speech today was a shrewd attempt to get out in front of her opponents and say i own this narrative on freedom of movement it's a progressive thing even though it's in the sort of ed Miliband zone as um you've just said it's nonetheless politically quite smart Mm -hmm. you know she's leading with her chin yeah but yeah, in it's a it's a pretty strong chin, as yeah, it were. Yeah, I mean, this thing. Speaking of leading with one strong chin, this is the difficulty with assessing. I think both Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy's bids, right? 
because if you take them literally, they are stupid. You know, I'm sorry, you can, you know, you know, Labour people on the soft left can send all of their anguished tweets before once again making a decision which leads to them being like, who could have seen this coming five years down the line? But it's true, right? I'm sorry, it is incoherent to say, I listen to towns, and then to preclude the two the two actually vote-moving issues on which Labour is at odds with the voters it has lost in town since 2005, which are crime and immigration. If you don't want to meet those voters on that, that's fine. You've just become a party which tries to win Wickham, but that has implications for your tax and spend policy. Also, it has implications for my emotional well-being if Steve Bagel loses seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, but those are, those are your two routes, right? Those yeah. are the two routes of 325 seats. Now, for understandable reasons, if I were Keir Starmer or Lisa Nandy, I would not be turning to the Labour membership and going, real talk, guys, these are your two options. <laughs> mm-hmm. However, the difficulty we have with both of them is, well, do they actually know that? Like, does, does Lisa Nandy believe that listening to towns involves listening and then going, ah, so I know you say you want the numbers to go down but actually what you really want is skills training that's not listening that's nodding it really reminded me of the the pitch owen jones made around 2015 about free movement you know and owen jones incidentally was involved in the draft nandy campaign for 2015 nandy is the candidate of the left remember that <laughs> in which he was saying his his line used to be that there should be some form of economic redress specifically pegged to free movement you know in terms of you know rebates or whatever for communities say if you are in Boston, Lincolnshire, if you are, you know, a member of the mythical, you know, great perturbed in, in Boston, not that they're mythical given, you know, the voting patterns in that constituency, you know, that you would know that actually the government was giving you some sort of form of redress for for free movement. And that's sort of the zone Nandy is in, basically. Yeah. Mm. Well, so I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot since last week because, you know, Stephen, your argument was sort of basically that immigration is a ticking time bomb at the heart of Lisa Nandy's campaign. And as you were saying, Patrick, today she's sort of tried to address that. But I've been thinking about it a lot and and that inherent contradiction between saying you'll listen to towns and then not listening to them when they say that they want lower immigration. And then I had a very good conversation with a non-Labour person about this. And I think that there, there just is a way to listen to people without changing your stance on immigration, which I think is basically to listen to people when they tell you about the material circumstances of their lives and their personal problems so like as it relates to them listen when they say that they have particular issues with you know what what like whatever it is i can't think of a good example you, good you example. can't get an appointment at your gp yeah. or mm. the primary school is now teaching 40 kids to a class or and, whatever and you and you just hear that and then people say to them you know immigration's a big problem blah, blah, blah. you know we have all these people moving in I think that there's a way as a campaigner and as a politician to say, no, I want to hear about your life, you know, like tell, like, and to focus on them and the issues that they're reporting. Because probably if you do address those issues, then the imagined or perceived problem of immigration is less of a perceived problem. And if there's a concrete problem with immigration, it's not immigration in the abstract, it's a specific immigration problem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like an immigration problem in your community where where something is under-resourced or badly funded or badly communicated or whatever it is, and then that should be addressed. I think that there, you know, maybe that just is really wildly naive, but I think that probably it depends on what you're listening to. You don't necessarily have to listen to people's imagined diagnosis of their problems, but you need to listen to 
their report and how their lives are yeah. going. A lot, a lot of people, yeah. I remember in the 2015 election when Labour MPs were trying to sell Ed Miliband's manifesto, that's yeah. the kind of arguments that they were trying, if they were being the sort of more, the ones with more integrity were trying to make those arguments on the doorstep rather than just, like you were saying, Stephen, nodding and listening and then being like, mm, yeah, I agree, mm. we need to sort that out, something, something, zero hours contracts. That, so they were making that argument, but for some reason that argument didn't get through. So I, I do think it's one of those things where you either... You don't make the reassuring noises and you and you completely give a full-throated, wholehearted defence of why immigration is so important to the country. Yeah. Or you, you do move closer towards what those voters would rather see in their communities because that's the only really authentic thing to do. I think voters can sniff out when you're... You're yeah. saying that you're listening, but you're not. Exactly. Even though it should be, it should be a nuanced conversation like the one that yeah, you've just outlined. But it also probably doesn't really mean then, except you know when you're making a speech or whatever, it probably doesn't mean that the conversation on the doorstep needs to be about immigration if you are talking about those specific issues and how you address them. So it is sincerely listening to people saying what the problems but, are and being prepared to hear something different. And but what, wasn't the story in 2019 about a? about a Labour Party desperately trying to go, I know you want to talk about Brexit, but have you noticed the public realm is falling down? Mm. And yeah. this, this thing is, yeah, so I think it's, it's a much better critique of things Labour could have done in office than would mean it was still there than it is a path back, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, kind of, it's, so sometimes you a mistake that you make in office you can just fix in opposition. Ed Miliband apologising for the Iraq war case in point, mm. did help them win back a bunch of, of Lib Dem voters. But because if you're in office, you can go, I know you don't like free movement, but we're going to regenerate your city centre with the money that it adds to GDP. But in opposition, all you're doing is going, you think you care about this, but actually I'm going to talk about a thing I care about. Now, this is where I am sympathetic to both Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer on this is, I'm afraid, and I go back and <laughs> forth on this, I do think that her speech today is a sign that she is a canny politician. And then in reality, when she says we need to recognise the things people don't like about it, well, the things people don't like about free movement are the word free and the word movement. And I think, and this is why I think that both both of them will not, you know, end in the, like, you know, the five years and the who saw that coming majority increasing, is I think ultimately your ability to win a leadership election is a is an example of your ability to be deft enough to win a general election or at least to move, because let's face it, this may well be a two-term project where they simply pass the ball in better nick to someone else. But yeah, I think I kind of agree with Anoush, and I feel that my my experience of covering the 2015 and 2019 election is if you're in opposition, you have to move towards what people think they want because you can't demonstrate the proof point until you are in office. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! We like the, the glamorous one, yeah. assistants. Yeah. <laughs> Pat didn't even bother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm still. I'm still you in the. Feeling I'm it. still yeah, yeah. in the mindset that I, you know, I'm a, a, a guest on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you are always. So, yeah, <laughs> don't really forget it. My watercolor's not on the thing, and it never will be. Um, <laughs> oh, I think it's get, still Helen's. We, yeah, we could, <laughs> we could get one of those, like um, the Five Doctors version. <laughs> I don't know why I decided I'm going to reference a 1981 <laughs> episode of Doctor Who. Don't write in. I know it's 1983. I know. I know. Um, like, um, but we could get one of those and then Helen could be the waxwork because in The Five Doctors Tom Baker didn't want to appear anymore because he was not working for The Atlantic uh, but, uh, and so they had a waxwork we could just have a wax Helen on the cover anyway that was not the question that people had for us uh, this was after two very bad defeats is it all over for the Liberal Democrats? You know, where can they go from here? Aldo. So I've I've done a deep dive into the the psyche of the Liberal Democrats over the past ten days or so. So I suppose my perspective is it's really like trying to understand what they all think rather than my I haven't really reached my own conclusion on it. I think as you were saying before in the last section, you know, the Liberal Democrats, you know, they're they're all you know pretty smart in the you know you have to be quite convinced of your beliefs and quite deeply interested in politics to decide to be a Liberal Democrat. So they all have quite a considered assessment of their role as the third party in this political system and what external factors affect their electoral fate as well as internal factors. So as you were saying, this was a very tricky election for them because they had they, it was a squeeze election basically. If you have two very unpopular leaders, people vote against their against the least bad one and they so the Lib Dems get squeezed out and as you say basically the fate of the Lib Dems is very closely correlated with the popularity of the Labour leader who is obviously not very popular at this time. In terms of their way back, I think the interesting thing for me, which I you know, will be writing in a piece that should be out probably as the podcast comes out is the sort of the burgeoning argument within the Liberal Democrats about how they relate to their their record and coalition. Like, it's sort of widely accepted that Ed Davey will be running for leader. He's acting leader at the moment, stood against Joe Swinson before. And then there are probably four other candidates who are seriously considering a bid. It's going to be busy. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think the most interesting one, I mean, they're all interesting, but the most strikingly different to Ed Davey is probably Daisy Cooper who is the new MP for St Albans, so wouldn't be widely known by the public, but is well known by the Lib Dem grassroots because she ran for party president and ran Joe Swinson's leadership campaign. She is she would be sort of the anti-coalition candidate. She was, you know, on the march against tuition fees, protested against the bedroom tax, all from within the party, and so would be quite well-placed, unlike other ones who maybe weren't, in the coalition government but didn't say anything either way about their their coalition record she has you know a very obvious pitch to make i think there are other arguments in the, within the liberal democrats like they're very aware that i think it's 70% of their membership has joined since 2015 so it's a very pro europe anti brexit membership which some mp's like and others worry that they have become the anti-Brexit party without mm-hmm. explaining why they're the anti-Brexit party. You know, it's because they are liberal, they're international, they're outward looking and they, you know, decided that Brexit was bad for the UK and it's not just because they're anti-it. And so mm-hmm. I think that they want, you know, 
you know, they're liberals, they want to be making a passionate case for liberalism, but then there are others who want to be leading on the pro-European argument. That, that's the best thing that could... Well, I'm ventriloquising the Lib Dems mm. I speak to here, who are all, regardless of where they are at in terms of their membership of various legislative bodies or positions within the grassroots, all of a certain vintage, i.e. they're not Johnny Come Lately's on the FPP wave and mm. something that they all agree with but will never say publicly so I'll do it for them is that they don't think it would be a bad thing if every single one of the members who joined since 2016 left because uh, <laughs> like, because well, maybe maybe that's a little bit harsh than they put it but essentially as you say Alva mm. there is serious discomfort within the Lib Dems uh, with certain quarters of the Lib Dems that they have become the party of EU mm. flag berets and yeah. you know and Philip Lee you know, and Philip yeah. Lee, yeah, Philip yeah, exactly. Lee is the kind of physical embodiment of this anxiety, right? You know, because it's not just a kind of like, you know, I was about to, it's not a like, where were you when we were shit kind of like, you know, <laughs> all of these plastics on the terrace who say they support Man United now kind of thing. Not least because they are very much, let's face it, still in the uh, third division situation. But um, it is this kind of fear of, well, we're a, we're a liberal and social democratic party. Mm-hmm. And now, um, yeah, I was talking to, you know, someone who's been in the grassroots for a long time and they were basically saying, you know, well, they were saying, you know, like, we let Philip Lee join. You know, we're a party of the, you know, we're a party of progressive liberals. And they said, and now I feel like we're a party of people who think Philip Hammond was a good thing because he wanted to keep us in the EU. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what anyone else thinks, but I think just as Labour Party members of the pre-Corbyn era had have an idea of what the post-Corbyn membership was like and is not really accurate, I think a lot of Lib Dems have an idea about who these new members are than is not actually that accurate. When you yeah. engage the average person on an EU on an EU march who's joined the thing will be what they say is, you know, they quite like Clegg. Um he is if you join the Liberal Democrats you get to choose what your membership card looks like and it's like oh. they've got like one oh. of Gladstone, one of <laughs> Philip Lee. Well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of Shirley Williams, one of Vince Cable one of Joe Swinson, so I guess if you've got a Joe Swinson leader card, then, you know, keep hold of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that might be <laughs> pretty valuable. Be yeah. But the number one one that is picked, I'm told, is Nick Clegg. And oh. actually... And so <laughs> I, so I, interesting. So That's I so actually think that they yeah. are possibly underestimating. Now, of course, where this becomes mm. more difficult is, as someone who... So I chaired one of their hustings and covered two more of them... So obviously nowhere near as many hustings as I did for the last Labour leadership election or the one before that will do for this one. But the impression I got from all three of those and the impression that everyone who went to was that Ed Davey did very well in the hustings. And so there's this idea of, oh, you know, the armchair membership made this pick based on who they saw on telly. But the armchair membership's always bigger than the grassroots. That's true of every party. Yeah, if, there's a, if a party had 10 members, I guarantee you, Mm. Two of them would at meetings complain, and the other eight never turned up. But that is very much where they are. Anush, what's your? It just of? must be. It must be so confusing to be to try and represent the Lib Dem membership because it's changed so much. Like I remember in 2015 when people were switching their votes to Labour or the SNP. Lots of the reasons were this used to be the party of you know drug legalisation, and I know they've moved a bit more on that recently. But it's sort of been a, a, a last ditch attempt at making headlines, hasn't it? Rather than sort of a real change in the party's philosophy. But it used to be like this was the kind of counter counterculture party the one that if if you didn't want to vote UKIP because you're liberal on immigration you would vote for the Lib Dems because they're they're sort of anti-establishment then it moved into the the sort of the people who are 
ordering the Nick Clegg membership cards who liked the idea of a party being in power and, and having some kind of say and, and they they presumably understand the compromises that Nick Clegg and other coalition ministers had to make. And now they've got this anti-Brexit membership who mm. probably have all sorts of different political philosophies. And, and the one thing that, that binds yeah. them is pro-European. Yeah, and that's really hard to represent for an MP or a future Lib Dem leader. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. I, I bet listeners of this podcast didn't think after what happened in Ashfield on the 12th of December that the name Jason Zdrozny <laughs> would, ever, would, would ever feature on this podcast again. But... What you just said, Anoush, reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me of an interview George Osborne gave to this very magazine in, I think, 2014. No, 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 it has to be 2015. It was um, by Jason Cowley, our attorney. It was called something like The Submarine Ascends. It was about George Osborne and why he was definitely What did he good. say? Well, it was definitely going to be compromised. What he said was, you know, Charles Kennedy's coalition of, you know, Celtic fringe radicals, local populists, anti-war activists was never that sustainable electorally and that's true and there's a reason Jason Zdrozny the independent leader of Ashfield Council came second to to the Tories in Ashfield beating Labour into third there's a reason he's not the Lib Dems anymore and that's because of Brexit he, there was also a, a big thing in his personal life where he was anyway uh, <laughs> readers can look it up listeners can look it up uh, but you know uh, he couldn't join the Lib Dems now because it's an anti-Brexit party despite being the archetype of a successful local Lib Dem you know a local populist mm. who understands local issues you know and he, uh, he had a line which was brilliant he said you know this basically used to be a franchise for parties like the Ashfield Independents where you could say I'm, mm. I'm basically you know liberal with a small L here are a set of discrete you know things for our local area and you can all do it under the, the the reassuring banner of the third party. Now they can't do that because they pin their they, they pin their colours to the mast of one Brexit solution. Because because the interesting thing is none of us have really talked about their 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 national profile, right? And actually, although this was an emotionally painful election for Liberal Democrats, right? The loss of their leader, you know, the loss of several sitting MPs, the failure to win Sheffield Hallam, you know, obviously Nick Clegg's old seat in which. Yeah, they had a very good candidate, and although actually the Labour candidate was was very good, ultimately, like they ought not to have failed to win a seat where the Lib Dem candidate had literally been being the MP for most of the last two years. Yeah, although it was a very painful election in terms of results, if you look at the overall map, so after twenty seventeen, yeah, I remember I can't remember what. So some local Liberal Party invited me to speak. And as whenever a local party of any persuasion invites me, uh, seriously, please do it. It's really useful for, for us to find out what local activists think. I kind of said, well, look, this was a bad election for you. you, you yes, you gained seats, but your vote share was even worse than in 2015. 33 second places. And you that only have 33 second places, many of them distant. This is not a reasonable beachhead to win anywhere else. Well, one of the one of the main reasons why Lib Dem bar charts became such a meme in this election is because they were having to make outrageous claims about you know because they had no natural frontier, so they were having to like make these absurd sort of like if you yeah. you know if everyone if only people <laughs> born in a leap year could vote in this constituency, <laughs> they'd only be fifteen points behind. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but crucially, I think the Lib Dems will probably end up looking back on Joe Swinson's leadership a bit like the Conservatives are starting to view Theresa May's. They'll go, she wasn't great on the campaign trail. She made a couple of strategic decisions which didn't help. But actually, now there are 50 of us because they have so many second places. Crucially, yeah. yeah, if you think about even just about London, because it's where we are and, you know, it's top of mind as a result, right? The Lib Dems spent a lot of time and money failing to win Kensington, getting 6,000 votes. If they had done none of that and instead spent all of that time trying to win Wimbledon where they lost by inches 
they would have an extra MP. Ditto, it wasn't clear in places like Wimbledon which vote was the right way to vote the Conservatives out. That Labour vote in a distant third will, I think, dissolve like, like, you know, snow in the sun. And so electorally, actually, I think they are in quite a good position just because they're... as long-time listeners were, my view has always been, regardless of what one thinks of the coalition oneself, if you're the third party and you've been in office once, you, you can apologise for individual bits of it, but you can't repudiate it. Yeah, you, you, yeah you, you have to start from the position of, yeah, we got a lot of good stuff done and we'd do it again. And I think one yeah. of the big mm. problems they've had since 2015... Yeah, actually, this was a problem in their 2015 campaign, right, where they went, oh, we'll give a heart to lab- heart to the Conservatives and a brain to Labour. And it's like, but guys, the actual subtext of that is we think they're stupid and they're heartless, but don't worry, we'll do a deal with either of them. <laughs> like, that's, that, that is just the road to ruin. And similarly, if you're running as a third party going, everyone else is an extremist, but vote for us and we certainly will not try and moderate them in office. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's the exactly. back that is a pointless position for a party to be in. I, uh, yeah, I think yeah, the twenty fifteen, the twenty ten result and twenty fifteen result were in both ways ought to have been liberating for them as a party because it should free them from this kind of like, oh, isn't it a shame that the Labour Party hasn't done enough about homelessness? But isn't it also a shame that the Labour Council is trying to build some <laughs> some housing estates? Like that is gone forever, <laughs> thankfully. Right, they, that that is not a viable route back to them holding multiple MPs. And I think that is a positive thing for them because I think... Because you have a more durable base of yeah. support. You don't go from mm-hmm. in one electoral cycle from being within 192 votes of Gloria de Pereira in Ashfield or, you know, winning Chesterfield in 2001 mm-hmm. to, like, losing your... I'm not... I'm, they did lose... They, they to did losing lose your it. deposit in 2017, right? Yeah. You know, it's... You have a more durable base of support with a constituency of voters with a bigger core vote that actually agrees with you on most issues. Yeah, yeah I think this is what a lot of... A lot of Lib Dem MPs are saying that they, you know, in lots of ways they are in a strong position to win again because they're second place in just upwards of 90 seats and they increased their vote share. But, you know, people are, that most Lib Dem MPs are, you know, quite kind and sad about Joe Swinson leaving, but they're quite scathing about quite a lot of decisions that she made during the election. And I, one of the criticisms that I hadn't expected to hear was that Jo Swinson didn't surround herself with people who had much experience of proper on-the-ground campaigning. And so they did it in a slightly sort of data-driven way without much experience of what campaigning as a Liberal Democrat candidate looks like. So there's sort of been some criticisms that people coming in from bigger parties, so your Philip Lees and your Choco Munoz, had no idea what it would be like campaigning as a Liberal Democrat when you're used to having like big party infrastructure where it almost doesn't matter where you stand like if the national swing is mm. good you'll win and if it isn't you won't whereas like I think Liberal Democrats are quite aware that the way you win when you're the third party and you're being attacked with lines like you know vote Lib Dem get Corbyn mm. the way you overcome that is by being so dug in and having such good local party infrastructure that people see you as the local party anyway, the sort of nice, sensible people who have lots of councillors who can get things done, and then you resist the national message. And I think that... I was surprised that that... Emerged it's interesting, though, because yeah. but, but like, they control Eastleigh Council, mm. and they, you know, they have the Tories have a massive majority in Eastleigh. They have... You know, councillors in every ward in Southport and now the Southport seat they held for 20 years and now are 
a really distant third in Southport. It's, it's, in, it's interesting, yeah. mm. the disconnect between the two. Yeah, and yeah, it, it, well, it is interesting because what everyone always says is that the Lib Dems are, are the best at local campaigning. So it's mm. interesting that they let that fall away this time around. I mm. do think, in an odd way, that does, to me at least, though, suggest that some people, although I guess actually it's mostly a neophyte parliamentary party, most of them don't remember the 2015 mm. Because I have similarly heard that, and I don't know why, having nodded and politely smiled, I'm now going to go like, hey guys, on a podcast you listen to, I was just being polite. That's actually bollocks. <laughs> but it is bollocks, right? Like, that didn't help any of them. It didn't even help them in this election. Like, you know, mm. Stephen Lloyd lost his seat in Eastbourne, despite having, you know, being like a, you know, Tom Brake, the hardest working man in 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 low pavement politics lost his seat because of the national swing I, and I do also think although the national the local stuff is vital if you're a third party trying to break through under first past the post it's it's both a launch pad but also a bit of a prison for them and I think the interesting test for them as a party in this election both in terms of what the MPs offer and what the members decide is right is like ultimately do they want to be a party which goes on question time under a Labour government and goes oh it's nice that Labour's helped kittens, but couldn't they help puppies as well? <laughs> or do they want to be a party that introduces equal marriage? And, you know, even though I have many complaints about the threshold raise, right, they were quite into it. It was party policy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. Yeah, do, yeah you know, they, they, they wanted it. The members I, wanted I, it. It's Kennedy versus Clegg question, yeah. isn't it? Like, and ultimately, I think that's the interesting question for them, because I think their future's secured. But what type of future? <laughs> This has been an odd week in that we've got this first majority government, but we're still in the kind of Queen's speech, lots of kind of like, you know, debates about education. It's wonderful. But we have had a couple of policy announcements kind of semi putting the putting the meat on the bones or, or not putting the meat on the bones, as it were, about, you know, the kind of about some of the promises, which kind of the I guess the big headline grabbing one is the muted end of the benefits freeze right they confirmed in in november last november that they'd end the benefits freeze which they'll probably make a big thing out of but but actually it was always scheduled to end in 2020 the the time scale was 2016 to 2020 when george osborne announced it i think in 2014 it was when he announced it or 2015 so they're going to make i can see that they're going to make hay out of it because they already have by legislating for making sure that local housing Local housing allowance, which is the sort of way that housing benefit is calculated for private tenants, is no longer frozen. So that rate is going to go up with inflation now. And they've said that will be £10 extra on average in people's pockets who are eligible for that benefit. So they're suggesting it's extra money for people, which is obviously, you know, a good way to spin it. But it actually isn't at all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's it's quite a disingenuous way of spinning it. And also it doesn't make up for the past however many years since 2016, five years. Sorry. I can't even remember what year we're in now. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of rents massively rising, obviously, way over the, the rate of inflation. So it's just like a little bit less of a cut rather than extra money. Mm-hmm. And this will be the same with all the working age benefits that they are now going to bring out back out from under the freeze so that they rise in line with inflation again. Because mm-hmm. this, I think, is the interesting thing about all of the kind of the spending commitments, right, is that... Ultimately, if your benefits are frozen for five years, you have fri- five years of price inflation. So you are real terms worse off when the freeze ends unless exactly, you yeah. decide to backdate the end of the freeze. Yeah. 
unless you decide to reverse the freeze, which obviously is really expensive. Labour didn't even pledge to end the freeze in its 2017 manifesto and then had a big hoo-ha about whether or not they would, whether they'd reverse it or whether they'd just end it, etc. So it really, the benefit freeze has really been the sort of cut that politics forgot. Like, they've the successive conservative chancellors, while saying that it's the end of austerity, have let it run or, run its course into 2020. And the Labour Party hasn't really... Hasn't had a welfare policy yeah, for the past hasn't really years, done so. very much, yeah. Other than pointing out the holes in universal hey, hey, credit, which UBI is... UBI pilot. That's, <laughs> That's, you know, a policy for the 10 people in the pilot zone. Yeah, what, what are you complaining about? What do you want? A universal benefit system? <laughs> um, How good would it be to be in the pilot zone? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't you just take a holiday? <laughs> so not the point. <laughs> um, but so the, the kind of the fascinating thing I think about all of this, right, is what we don't know, and it's one <laughs> of the reasons why I think um, so. so it's one of the reasons why I think the Labour Party ought to have waited a bit before having it, and why I think the Liberal Democrats are right to do what. Well, it, they're, they're elected; their board will decide. But what all of their MPs basically think is they're like, look, Ed Davey is perfectly competent. Let him be leader for acting leader for some time, and we can work out exactly what went wrong, what went right for, for the Conservatives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is do they need to end austerity or do they need to end what I think of? The stuff that Philip Hammond was, I think, doing quite an astute job of doing, so money for potholes, money to try and tackle rough sleeping, and then kind of targeted tax relief for that bit of the Conservative coalition that doesn't like Brexit earns slightly above average. Yeah, you know, kind of basically, if you do potholes, rough sleeping, and here's a little bit extra for people who earn 45 to 70k, is that enough ending of austerity, right? Because at any given time, most people's individual experience of the state of the NHS is pretty sort of nurgatory. Yeah. Because if if you can do that, then the sp- their spending commitments are fine and will definitely achieve all of those things. If they want to actually end it, end it, right... Yeah, I know that I feel every other week I'm like, don't spend more money on the health service unless you're going to spend more money on local authorities and social care. But at this point, I mean, so Patrick, they, this came up a bit at PMQs, didn't it? So It did. And, you know, the, the, the answer Boris Johnson gave was sort of yes. Mm-hmm. You know, as with any question of public spending, mm-hmm. the headline answer, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously every answer a Conservative government, especially this Conservative government, whose sort of defining PR mission is to be the party of ending austerity and spending more on stuff. You know, obviously every answer that it gives is, is full of holes and caveats, but, you know, whether it's on the NHS, whether it's on another public sector spending issue, Boris Johnson's answer is always going to be more money, which Tory MPs will happily amplify, regardless of whether actually in real terms on a specific policy issue like the benefits freeze, it is more money for the people the policy is primarily affecting. But the policies for this for the Tory party are, are very straightforward. I think for me that the other interesting question, as well as like, you know, so you've ended these cuts, are you actually getting a bang for your buck? And it's definitely the thing I just know that we don't know is, so obviously some Tories do care about debt, right? But we don't know how much they care about debt. Like if we'd, if we'd at the start of the 2016 period been like, let's guess some Tory MPs who might defect over Europe, I think we probably would have been able to name as many people who ended up defecting over Europe. But I don't think any of us would necessarily have picked the ones who did, right? And I think, for me, it feels quite similar to that. There are there are definitely lots of Conservatives who are troubled by the fact that the policies on ending austerity, the policies on not having tax rises and the promises on not having mounting government debt do not add up. But they've never been asked in their whole careers how much they care. 
I th- there's been a lot of stories uh, and columns in the past couple of weeks about sort of wither the ERG. The answer to which, most frequently given, because it's been briefed out by certain members of the ERG, is that they become sort of like a free market pressure group. And if you look at the first picture of the European Research Group of this Parliament, there were 40 people in there, and you had, you know, Steve Baker, whose love of uh, free market economics is second to none, not just in Westminster, but probably the world, and, you know, various MPs of a certain vintage around him who can reliably be assumed to be on the same page as him in a, in a broad way, not in the sort of pure Austrian school economics Steve Baker loves, but sort of thinking, you know, low taxes are good, a small state is good, whatever. But the problem is with this idea of the ERG becoming a, you know, a pressure group where you can pull a lever just as you could with Theresa May's Brexit and say, OK, there's 40 people in the no lobby there against this European policy issue. Now in the European Research Group, you've got a whole raft of Tory MPs who've joined because it's a Brexit, a hard Brexit thing, right? You have like and apologies if any of these people aren't in this picture, but you have MPs like Deanna Davidson from Bishop Auckland who okay, might say, yeah, I'm well Brexit, but also she's getting up at PMQs and saying, hello, can I have my hospital A&E open 24 hours again, please? So this idea that there will be a ready and predictable block of free market MPs who will say, absolutely not. You know, mm-hmm. As you say, it might there might be 40 MPs who rebel against it, but it's certainly not going to be the 40 MPs we think, and I don't think they're going to be easily... Corallable, as it were. That's so interesting because I think a lot of people have said that it's the the Britannia Unchained MPs who have defined the Conservative Party in this modern era. But actually, if that was the case, would Boris Johnson be able to stand up and say, "Yeah, yeah, more spending for you, more spending for you"? And people talk about you know Sajid Javid. As, I might be nicking one of your points, or certainly one of your Twitter correspondents' points, like you know Sajid Javid, the Randian. You know, he's all well into free markets, and you know the the Treasury Green Book is now the fountainhead. It's like, well, no, it's not. Like, look at Sajid Javid's record as a business secretary, yeah. and look at what he's sanctioning now. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but with this thing, there is like more Thatcherites around the cabinet and less Thatcherism than arguably mm. even 1997 to 2010. But away from the politics, the kind of the policy sort of the policy subplot in terms of the pressures on the public realm were individual councils having to turn around to the Secretary of State for local government and go, I'm sorry, I have no money left, and just having to, like, declare, you know, so I want to say Northamptonshire. Yeah. 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 Um, What to you, looking at what cuts are ending and what cuts aren't ending, is likely to be the kind of, like, drumbeat bit of the public realm then puts it, you know, goes, actually, sorry, the, we, we can't function anymore. I know it's a I know it's a common refrain on this podcast and probably our listeners are fed up with us talking about it, but it really is social care. Like, if Boris Johnson is true to his word, which he said in his speech as Prime Minister outside number 10, that he has a clear plan for fixing social care and that he's going to start doing that straight away, if he builds um, a new funding structure for social care that works, then that's going to fix a lot of the other cuts that we're seeing because social care, councils have to spend money on social care, it's the law. So that means that they stop spending money on other stuff basically and that's why you see a library closing or you see, yes we do have a new pothole fund but there's still really poorly maintained roads, etc. So I think unless that that problem is fixed, that's basically a crisis, like the country, (laughs) in some parts of the country, councils are unable to really run their well to run their local areas because of that they're they're in crisis already we've already had a bankrupt council not just for that reason but Tories themselves say that other other councils that have a similar kind of makeup could be facing the same kind of disaster because of social care Boris Johnson has said I think he said in PMQs didn't he that he wants to that's something the government doesn't have you know beyond more money like for the politically easy questions that Boris Johnson can just say 
more money. Yeah. And Corbyn used all six of his questions at PMQs today about the NHS, which segued quite skillfully into, like, well, what are you going to do about the social care crisis then? To which Boris Johnson said, hey, I'm really committed to social care, so committed that we're going to have a cross-party commission to, mm. you know, deal with this question at an indeterminate point in the future. So, like, as you say, like, beyond more cash, that doesn't actually resolve the structural issue that local councils are facing. Yeah. They say, okay, I'm going to spend more of this more money on the thing that is already constraining me financially anyway. Like, it doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't make sense, and it's also too late. So lots of lots of Tories who you speak to will, when I bring up social care, will say, well, look, you know, this isn't something we can rush. We've got to change the structure from, you know, the ground upwards, so we've got to do it cross-party so that we don't end up in a death tax, dementia tax kind yeah. of ping-pong. But it's like, well, you should have done that a long time ago. It doesn't make sense to be doing that now. So something like a Labour's manifesto where they wanted to provide free personal care, which is the basic care needs that people need when they are unable to look after themselves at home, something like that has been a policy that's been advocated across across parties. So unless the Conservative Party basically introduce that in the budget now, I think we are heading for a crisis in funding for that. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kellyan, our political correspondents, Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray. Emily, our usual record- recorder, is on holiday for her birthday, so a happy birthday to her. It's produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you have a question for us, just tweet Anoush, I, Patrick or Alva and we'll try and get to it as soon as possible. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.